Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this next episode in the series of Getting to Better Together. Before I go further, I would acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gabi Gabi people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emergent. We've talked so far in this series of citizens and governments and how they might possibly work together to getting to better. Today, I want to add add a third vital constituency, the world of business, of corporations, and their concept of social responsibility. It is my great personal pleasure to invite um, into this conversation uh, a long-term friend of mine, Howard Dare, who was um, or has been in his life a senior corporate executive, a business owner, a futures consultant, and a one-time high school maths teacher. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Richard, and good morning to your current and future listeners. I want to plunge into this conversation by asking you how and why you took the leap from being a high school math teacher into the what some might recall might re- regard as the turgid world of business and corporations. Well, um, there is a clear reason, in, at least in my mind, but let me um, indulge myself a little bit by contextualising it. When I was 17, 1957, Russia launched Sputnik, the first of the satellites, and I was just about to enter university. In 1960, they launched Sputnik 2. Sputnik in Russian means fellow traveller. And then I found myself progressively taking on teaching loads which were very high, or year 12 mathematics and sciences. I was sportsmaster of a large school as well, which I had no business doing, as, and I was careers master, and I'm just now 25. And I became concerned about the fact that I was a bit of a fraud. I was talking to young people, 17, 16, 17 year olds, about a life that I had never been in. And I became worried by George, George Bernard Shaw saying that those who do, uh, those who can do, those who can't teach. And I decided then by, you know, we're into the computer age, we're into the, the satellite age, I needed to get myself into that environment. So I made a decision to follow the computer line. And that meant either applying to a computer manufacturer or a major user, and I chose the latter. And that put me into the world of graphic technology where I was to stay for the rest of my working life. But it was really that concern about what is the big world out there doing and how can I be a part of it? Um, Before I go further, I should say that uh, you obviously made the leap that I didn't make uh, and those that can't include me because I still teach. Let me just um, um, intercede there a little bit by saying, if I reflect on those years um, and w- the way I conducted myself or tried to, it was all based around what I learned when I was teaching. I, I used coaching techniques and teaching techniques and team building techniques throughout my professional career. So in a sense, that was a continuation of, of uh, what it was that you had been doing as a teacher. But what about the differences and the profound differences that uh, I also experienced between the culture of education, particularly public education, and the idea of corporations, um, the world of business, the world of decisions, the world of profit, and so on? Did you notice that as a, as a huge chasm, or was that just a continuum? 
No, it was a major change. There's no question of that. For different reasons, it was a highly competitive world. It focused very much on customer, and it focused on customer as a means of achieving its own objectives, whether they were profit or shareholder profit or both. But it was highly competitive and um, in a different way to the education environment. But not too dissimilar from what you experienced as a sportsman? No, no, no. That's pretty close to the mark. I um, played two sports to a fairly good level, competitive, organised competitive sports. And uh, I did see a lot of parallels. There's no question of that. But... Um, again, the more I look back, the more I realise that the way I tended to function and the environments where I felt comfortable, corporate environments where I felt comfortable, were those that operated around the idea of teams and empowerment of teams of people. And the notion of being um, deliberative rather than representative also began to emerge so that I found it techniques of enlisting people voluntarily, if you like, to take on major projects and to enjoy the accomplishment of the objectives. You made the interesting comment there uh, about profit for both uh, the company itself and its shareholders as if that was the exclusive end, uh, because you said both. What stage did you recognise that, in fact, business needed to go beyond the citizen as a consumer, but as a citizen uh, him or herself? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because I I can't find a moment of of, of realisation as I reflect. It was much more a progressive thing uh, of finding environments in which which social responsibility began to be obvious. Uh, It was... uh, a bit of a progressive thing. And of course, I ended. I was working for most of my work life for a German manufacturer who was world-leading in their technology, but who, a company which was heavily invested in its local community, and there was more than one local community. And the more, I be, more senior I became in the organisation, the more involved I became in that sort of thought process. And in the 90s, the company was clearly engaging the community, the communities in which it operated. And it was reflected also in the, the imperative within the company that managers trained their own people themselves. Uh, that was um, led from the top, and the top was a small team of about nine, of which I was one. We had some outside help initially, um, consultant help, but from there on, we as managers directly trained our own people. I asked the question in a sense that I too made, uh, at one stage, I worked for, for a corporation, and I discovered that there was a huge cultural difference, if in nothing else, than the issue of zero sum. And from what you've said, this also was, was part of a sport, for instance, and in terms of the uh, primacy of making money. So whilst you say there was no point of uh, realisation, there must have been, if not a, a moment of realisation, then, if you will, a sort of a period of it where you grew into the idea that, in fact, business is not a zero-sum game but must include social responsibilities, which then also, as the triple bottom line would suggest, extends into 
the ecology into the environment. Looking at the industry in which I worked or which company operated, there were a lot of environmental issues that were dominant in conversation through that time, remembering that one of the major components of the industry was paper. And we were beginning to see more and more recycled paper. We were becoming concerned about deforestation. We looked at artificial substrates on which to print. We, the uh, ink environment changed as well because it went from petrochemical-based to soy-based more and more. And uh, those things, uh, those discussions took place very much through the 80s within the industry. So there was um, an external, uh, not totally external, but let's say a, a non-company-based environmental issue. But I think the major change for me was when I was asked to go to Asia and to take on and acquire uh, 14 companies in 14 countries. As the company changed its um, distribution philosophy from being a manufacturer, a precision manufacturer with distributor network to a manufacturer with an owned network. And the, the, the staff numbers um, grew to about 25,000 through that process. And a lot of these um, acquisitions that went on around the non-European world were acquisition of distributors and then integrating them into the company and integrating them into the company's values. Let me pursue this issue of uh, values uh, a little further. Was there at any stage in that corporate stage of your career before you moved to your, your own business and then back into academia, was there a point where you had a clash of values, where you had to question your own values in a sort of self-reflexive way, or you got to a point where there was a, such a, a clash in, in values between you and the corporate or, what, or the world around you uh, that you made another decision? Um, I think I understand you, the thrust of your question. There were, I, I had no major disagreements throughout that part of my professional life with the company for whom I work. Their values were consistent. They were adapting as needs be. However, at local levels, through this process of acquiring the distribution network, we did come across, I did come, I came across some operating activities that were discordant and that needed to change. And they weren't always easy to handle because they were often culturally based. But we found ways of working through that and we did so by looking towards um, corporations or advisors like the Hofstetter Institute. Um, we could learn cultural values that were appropriate to the countries in which we're operating and then modify our, our management and, uh, and leadership of those groups so that they were constructually, culturally consistent. So there you were, working away, doing all sorts of um, really profound things in terms of helping the sort of cross-cultural challenges, I guess, and trying to, to deal with them within a, within a corporate context. And then you made the decision to open your own company, to start your own company. What was the motivation there? I lived in Singapore and Tokyo. I had an apartment in each, and I was commuting between Singapore, Tokyo, Melbourne, and Germany, and the U.S. So I lived in a plane. Inevitably, a deep vein thrombosis got a hold of me, and uh, I had to make a change. So I 
I decided then to stop my corporate activity. Uh, this is by now 2001. And that meant, what do I do now? So I started my own business. It wasn't a major business. It, it revolved a lot around consulting. Uh, I did have small commercial activity for a short period. And I also ran skippered charters out of in Port Phillip for four years on my own boat. They were minor business activities compared to what I'd been used to. And then you took the leap back into academia. Yes, I did. I was approached by one of the universities. I didn't approach them, they approached me and asked if I would uh, join the faculty and uh, head up one of the schools and restructure it, which I contracted to do. And that was a very interesting period. I say interesting because I learned very quickly that the interpersonal issues in in academia are very different from those that operate in business. You say a little bit more about that, Howard? I found it much easier in business to get teamsmanship built and to get cooperation and collaboration than I ever did in academia. Uh, I found um, there were levels of nastiness that went on in academia that really shocked me, surprised me. And it I became part of the academic leadership group within that university and there was clearly areas where business principles could be used effectively but were often resisted. Can you think of a tangible example? Yes, I I remember uh, the university decided at one stage to hire some external change management consultants and uh, they came sweeping into the place in a rather high-handed manner and in the end I ordered them off the campus. That created a short-term ruckus until people said, well, maybe he's right, and they were banished totally <laughs> because those sort of things could be done effectively internally, as I had been doing for most of my life. There's a sequence in your uh, life that I uh, haven't mentioned as yet, and that's you're a farmer. Well, when uh, I was born at the beginning of the war, Hitler invaded Poland in September 39 and I was born in January 40. I'm inclined to claim that, you know, that frightened the hell out of my mother and that's that's how I appeared. Um, I was born in Brighton in Melbourne and uh, the family made a decision, I was the eldest of six, but by then there were six, to move from metropolitan Melbourne to the, the country. And they did that in 1949 to a small farm, you know, a small lifestyle farm. That was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me and it gave me a taste for life on the land a little bit. I would milk cows every morning before going to school, hand milk them. We raised our own poultry, we had our own fruit and vegetables. We lived near a market garden. My mate was a son of an Italian market gardening couple. So I got a taste of farm life and for the rest of my life I would always gravitate to living outside the metropolitan area. Ultimately that led to owning a 600 acre property in the northeast where I started making wine and olive oil. And did you apply the principles that you were grasping in industry and in your own company and consulting and in universities, the issue I guess of increasing environmental responsibility to the point of doing something about it? to take your original comment, rather than just teaching, doing. So were you very conscious in your farming activities, with your olive oil and wine in particular, uh, of farming in such a way that was regenerative? Well, yes. Um, Interestingly, the property that I purchased had been invaded by two pests. Blackberries was one, and rabbits was the other. (laughs) What a combo. Yeah, that's right. And of course... They are a combo, and um, that's that was the way they were intended, yeah. in, incidentally, by Baron von Müller, who, to his 
shame should never have gone down the Blackberry path as he did. I then decided that I would rid the, this property of both and succeeded in doing so. Uh, and as, as we did, we discovered some rare plants. The property had on it a eucalypt uh, species called swamp gum, and it was the largest private stand of swamp gum in Victoria. The place had been badly eroded, so we battered all the banks and planted some 4,000 trees with the help of Green Corps, which was a, a group, uh, a Green Corps was young people, unemployed young people being paid by governments, in this case the state government, to do projects like forestation. So we, we planted indigenous species uh, along the banks, uh, restored that land, ripped the rabbit warrens, got rid of the rabbits, and ultimately the Victorian government came out and put an award on the front gate of the farm, uh, you know, a little uh, notice award of um, accomplishment. So... That was probably the most um, the most endearing and long-term struggle that I had on the land was was getting rid of the rabbits in particular. That's uh, an interesting metaphor, isn't it? We spend a whole lot of our efforts and our times getting rid of the baddies in order to uh, keep going with the goodies. Howard, it's been a delight, absolute delight, listening to you and talking with you. And, and I would invite our listeners to reflect on chapters in their own lives where their particular values have been challenged for one reason or another, the satisfaction that they've got uh, when they become incredibly aware of positions that they hold and values that they hold, and then what it is they, they did about it. Richard, thank you, and it's nice to talk to you again. I look forward again, Howard, to a, a further conversation sometime down the track, and uh, I will, in the interim, say goodbye to you and goodbye to our listeners.